If you would please, please stand as I'll be reading out of Psalm 36 this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light... Do we see light? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to have faith in these words that we would feel confident that you would change our hearts to not be that of the wicked, but that we would be your children enjoying your blessings. May it be now with the proclamation of your word that we would have that benefit by you putting your spirit in us and bringing life to our hope and light to our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. How many of you have been given the counsel from someone to follow your heart. How many of you have ever given counsel to others to follow your heart? Is it a bad thing to follow your heart? What is that, John? That's a good answer. It is a very common thing to hear today to follow your heart in difficult circumstances and difficult decisions to follow your heart. Now, some of you who know the scriptures know that that could be a very dangerous thing. But I would say that John's answer is the right answer. It depends upon your heart. Now, of course, that if our heart is left to ourselves, then it would be a very bad thing to just follow your own hearts. What does it say in the scriptures that the heart is 
most deceitful of all things. That's a bad place to receive counsel if that is what you're left with. But we have a hope and promise and why we are here today is not so that we can just be known in our reputation as Christians who gather on the Lord's Day, that we could be considered those in this community as those who proclaim his name, but that we are here because of the hope that he is changing our heart. It is a promise that he has made to us. Now, something else that I've often hear, how many of you have ever heard people say, well, I know God's heart. Often I'll hear that um, in response to some kind of debate about some doctrine of scripture or maybe some particular belief that is in the church or in the culture, and in contrast to what that particular doctrine or philosophy is, someone will say, but I know God's heart, and it would, he would not do this, or he would not do that. Now, that's a pretty scary thing to say, but at the same time, we know, even from the one who wrote this psalm, that David was a man after God's own heart. Can we know God's heart? These are questions that I want to pose before you as we go into this particular passage because in the very beginning, there's basically three strophes in this psalm. And I I did the Google thing and it says strophes when you push the pronunciation thing. So if I'm saying it wrong, that's what Google told me to say. Um, I've been saying strophes in other contexts, but it's supposed to be strophes. There's three different sections of this psalm, three different places of focus as the structure of this psalm. And the first thing is to focus on wickedness, to focus on the wicked. The second thing is to focus on the steadfast love of God. And then the last strophe is to cry out to God For him to continue his steadfast love in us, focusing particularly on our own hearts, asking the Lord to keep us from our own arrogance. So it's a good place to have a good balance because in the beginning we're going to be talking about wickedness as if it is someone else or if it is another group of people. And I think that it's important for us to know how to dwell upon wickedness rightly. There's plenty of wickedness around us. There's plenty of wickedness to observe. But a lot of times, I don't think we look at wickedness rightly. We redefine it due to our own irritations. I've mentioned this in previous sermons, that a lot of times when we see the sins of others, we put it in the context of how it is handicapping our plans or getting in the way of what we desire or just straight up being annoying to us versus what God is actually saying about wickedness. So I I saw inside of this first strophe different places for us to look at wickedness rightly. And we can look at wickedness in the culture. We can look at wickedness in the church and among God's people. And then it's good for us, as we see in the very last trophy, for us to be thinking about the wickedness that resides within ourselves. But then as we turn away from thinking about wickedness, this particular psalm is instructing us to think about the righteousness and the goodness of God in contrast to that wickedness. 
Now, that's one of the first symptoms that we often see that we are thinking about wickedness wrongly is that when we see wickedness often in or in around us or amongst the people in front of us, we immediately start contrasting it with ourselves or with our group or our people. If we're looking at another family, we're thinking about it in contrast to our own family. If we see an individual, we often do it with ourselves. If we see the culture of wickedness, we often contrast it maybe to the culture of Christians or the church or who we are as Christians. This psalm is instructing us when we look at the wickedness in general that we should contrast it to the righteousness and the goodness of God and what benefit it has for us in the very first trophy there, we see here that there are six different things about wickedness that will help us to understand true wickedness or to have a true perspective of wickedness. The very first thing it says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That communicates to us consistently with all of other scriptures that wickedness is ultimately a heart issue. It's not something that is outside of us as much as it is something inside of us. And we see Jesus reiterate that when he talks about being cleansed on the inside and not just having the things on the outside Cleansed. But here we see a deep issue. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It's a well-rooted thing. It's a well-rooted for those just by being conceived in sin. We have sin deep in our hearts, even beyond our own understanding. But for those who are categorically wicked, we know that it is the driving force the primary driving force that is very deep inside of the heart. We see after that that there is a lack of, of fear of God. That is a continual theme that we see in the scriptures whenever the wicked is being described. It is when there is a lack of a holy fear of God. A fear of potential wrath for sin and just a general fear and honor and respect of God. Now, I'm sure we could list many places in the world around us where we can see that being highlighted again and again, but we know again, we could get very close to home with that when we think about have we a proper fear of the Lord? I'm very grateful for both Jonathan's prayers this morning and our prayer time and Scott's prayer as we recognize the beauty of the spring a lot of us will quickly say oh I'm so glad that spring is here and so glad I'm so sick and tired of the winter and how miserable the winter it is and, and it's this kind of entitlement mindset instead of just having a proper fear of God for both what he shows us in the darkness and gloom of winter but also what he teaches us in the resurrected life of spring, bringing it back to his glory, bringing it back to a proper fear that we have a creator that just because we're tired of the cold rain doesn't mean that we're entitled a break from it. 
We also see here that the one who is wicked is going to have an overly high view of self, that he flatters himself in his own eyes. His identity will be defined by himself. He will shape his own identity in a way that is flattering and pleasing to himself. And when that happens, what happens is that he's self-justifying. And therefore, he will do it in a way that not only hides his own iniquity before others so that he may be hated, but for his own sake, he hides his own iniquities. He basically talks himself out of accepting the reality of his own wickedness, and therefore there's nothing there for him to despise and hate, to lament, or to be ashamed of himself. It says here that this will eventually produce fruit of the tongue, that the words of his mouth are going to be trouble and deceit. Now, we learn in James that this is something that we all have a problem with. That we have a problem with our tongue because it is the faucet of what is inside of our hearts. And as we know, that that is where the wickedness resides. And so, if there is any confusion about whether or not there is wickedness inside of us, all we have to do is listen to one another for a good enough time and then we will learn in time that yes the Lord may be working in our hearts but there is still wickedness there and often that that spews out of our mouth will cause trouble and then we'll see that there's a lack of wisdom there's a lack of faithful action there's a lack of a pursuit of service toward good that it's not just the actions that are there and the lack of wisdom But there's even the plotting at night. Plotting continually, both day and night. Plotting this trouble. Plotting this self-idolatry. This planning out our own ways and our own worship. I recently have the opportunity to get a couple of cars. Because our cars are falling apart and I'm needing to get something else and I realized in the last couple weeks it's just a constant thinking about making the right kind of purchase making sure I'm doing a good investment and I could tell that it was beginning to take hold of me I was thinking about it night and day continually responding to every communication that I had to try to make sure and and I realized it was pulling me further and further away of being able to have the right kind of focus on the things well That can be idolatrous. That can be a type of plotting trouble because that is, I don't have like some kind of subcategory that this is my time and this is God's time. And a lot of times as we're trying to think through how we should be thinking, that even our consumption of thought in the volume of what we put toward our minds or in our minds is not something of the service of God. It is plotting trouble. And interestingly enough, I've sensed that we've had some trouble in our home, maybe because of my own focus and lack of focus. And then lastly, we see here that this mindset will bring about a a destructive path, a trajectory of sin that will be that you do not yield toward God, that you'll 
have a place where God will put up signs and reminders for us to go according to his will and wickedness will just decline simply to continue on with our own desire and our own hope. So those are the six particular things that we learned there in that first paragraph about the wicked. And I wanted to take a moment to just think about how we can see these things and how we can observe them. And it's good and right for us to take a moment that when we have bad news, that we know how to categorize it rightly in our minds before the Lord so that we can learn from that. Because that's what the psalm is ultimately doing. It's showing us how to think about wickedness. I want to take a moment to just think about where we are now in our nation. Speaking of a car, you know, a lot of the reason why I'm able to purchase cars is because of this new stimulus program. And the government's just giving away all kinds of money in our nation right now. Never before have we had so much money just being spent like this. And we're getting further and further in debt. And it's going to have ramifications on our nation that we can't even calculate what it's going to do to our economy, but also what it's going to do to our mindset and to our workforce. And when we think about that, we can think about that very easily on a political level. And there's going to be a lot of people out there that's going to tell you how to think about what's going to be going wrong in our nation due to our high spending and our very socialistic trajectory that we're on. But I would think that we need to take that and we need to put it within the template of here in this psalm and think about it. This is not a new kind of thing. This is something that we can look at historically and see that this is a trajectory toward wickedness because of who we are, the things that we see defined in God's word. This is not a political problem. It is a heart problem. Our country was founded by a constitutional government because the people and the founders of this nation, both Christian and non-Christian, they recognize that mankind falls into that category of the very first verse. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And so to try to form a government that could respond and react to that to the best of our ability. Even Ben Franklin has said, and others have said, that it's not possible for this government to last with our hearts if they're given over to wickedness and infidelity. James Madison, here, listen to this quote. See if it fits contextually. If we think that we're upon any kind of new problem, look at what James Madison said in the very beginning of our Government. It says, if Congress can employ money indefinitely for the general welfare and are the sole and supreme judges of the general welfare, they may take care of religion into their own hands. They may appoint teachers in every state, county, and parish and pay them out of the public treasury. They may take into their own hands the education of children the establishing in like manner schools throughout the union. They may assume the provision of the poor, were the power of Congress to be established in the latitude contended for, it would subvert the very foundations and transmute the very nature of the limited government established by the people of America. 
We are a nation of people that are ready to be slaves, but not slaves of God. Even in, we heard in the passages read this morning of this tendency to be slaves. Our hearts long to be slaves. And we are here today to declare that we are not slaves of this world, but that our master is Jesus Christ. And so as we think about what is going on in the culture around us, we need to see that that is the battle that is occurring. That the heart of mankind is wanting to be enslaved. It's not a democratic problem. It's not a liberal problem. It is a heart problem. George Washington said, let me warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party. They serve to organize factions to put in place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of the party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority. It is important that those entrusted with this administration confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of powers one department any encroachment upon another. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one and thus create a real despotism. Despotism is absolute and oppressive authority. We are moving quicker and fast and lightning speed toward this despotism and our government, our people, they love it. We are being driven really by a minority, but that minority is actually a majority because all of our hearts are given to the slavery. But it's not just confined to our nation. It's not just confined to the people around us. We can look at those things. We can say, oh, yes, we see that. But yes, you know, I am given to that. The church is given to that. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this past week, and I did not realize this, that a reason why many churches have not opened back up yet is because they are getting a part of the stimulus that is actually providing them an income that was greater than what their tithes and offerings in many churches were receiving beforehand, if they stay closed. Once they open back up, they cannot receive those funds. These are Christian churches. I did not know this was occurring. I did not know that was available. And who's to know that maybe if I had, maybe there would be a, a half a second or maybe a full second of like, whoa, hmm, wonder how much we would get. It's a scary thought. They know how to speak to our hearts because our hearts are inclined toward that wickedness. We see in Jeremiah, the sin of Judah, a tribe of God's own people. In Jeremiah 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on high hills, on the mountains of the open country, 
your wealth and all your treasurers, I will give a spoil as a price of your high places of sin throughout your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in the land that you do not know. For my anger, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. That is the same chapter where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? He's not talking about the hearts of those outside of the covenant people of God. He's talking about his very own people. That it is a problem with mankind. That our hearts are desperately sick. But inside of this, there is a hope because even though he says that his fire will burn forever, it's not that he's lying, but he is also in the same breath telling us that he is going to restore us. We are not left with just these first four verses about the wickedness. Thankfully, this is a short psalm that lets us get to verse 5 very quickly. And it says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. See, yes, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. But here, as the psalmist transitions to the praise of God, he praises God for his steadfast love. Now, as Christians, if you've been in the church for a good season of time, you may have heard that so many times that it just sounds like a nice adjective about love. But this is a very strong, (laughs) very strong word about what kind of love he has particularly for his particular people. See, the steadfast love is a covenantal term that he has made a promise toward his people that they will not continue in that kind of wickedness. And it extends beyond all depths. It extends to the heavens that his faithfulness will go to the clouds, that his righteousness is like the mountains of God and that his judgments are like the great deep. Here we see five attributes of God that we can have tremendous hope in as we consider the wickedness, which we should consider the outside wickedness. We should consider our corporate wickedness and we should consider our inward wickedness and then immediately go to the goodness of God, to the righteousness of God. See, we, we want to not go back to ourselves. We don't want to look at the government or the liberals or even the church. Maybe we will say the broad evangelical. That's a term that I use a lot. The broad evangelical church tends to do this or that. And I begin to talk about it as if it's something else outside of our own church that we are kind of preserved from that, that we have goodness in of ourselves that makes us better than the broad evangelical church. When really that's just a self um, admitting that we are all in this boat together. I remember, and it's good to think about our sin. I remember when I was a kid, 
when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years old, I was thinking of playing a practical joke on some neighbor kids of mine. They're very little um, compared to me. Well, maybe a year or two younger than me. And I had this very heinous, I'm not even going to tell you how bad it was, because you all would be embarrassed. You probably would make me resign from being a pastor. It was just a horrible practical joke. And I was planning it, and I remember sitting on the stairs with this 1970s-looking carpet on the stairs. I can see it now. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking about what I was about to do. And I was like, man, this is horrible. (laughs) This is not a good thing. Why did I come up with this? I remember thinking about that when I was a little kid. And I was thinking, I would hate for someone to do this to me. This would be really bad. And then I went ahead and tried it. Now you're talking about not following and yielding to God. I just went on. Now thankfully, by the grace of God, these kids were wised up to my practical joke and didn't follow through. I'm not sure what would have happened if they actually would have gone through with it. The joke just basically nullified itself. But I remember thinking that through. Have you had times? I am certain. Surely I'm not the only wicked one here. (laughs) That has had that moment where you've thought that through and you go, how did I even get this in my mind? Where did this come from? Now, I hope, which I have had many times where they're like, how did this get in my mind? And thankfully, I did yield to the Lord. But have you ever had that moment when you didn't? And you proceeded on, I'm sure you have. It is not a healthy thing for us to turn back and say, well, I am at least better than this. I'm at least better than these other people. No, we must go and hear the words of Jesus. It says, I am the only one good. There is no one good but me. Here we see these five attributes of God. It's his steadfast love, his binding love toward his people. A covenant love toward his people that he will not break. The chapter before what we read today, I didn't even know that we were going to be doing Ezekiel 37 until I saw the lectionary readings. And I was already reading Ezekiel 36. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, there, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the, vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. God can say the same thing about us as Christians. He is going to act in his love toward us for his righteousness sake. It's not like he looks down at us and says, You guys are so great and so much better than all these other people, all these other nations, all these other groups of people. And therefore, I am going to love you because you are so much more attractive. No, he says because of his greatness, he is going to maintain his steadfast love. He is going to unify both Israel and Judah. He's going to bring about all of his people. And then it says in verse 33 of that chapter, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. 
There is a hope that God is going to cleanse our hearts. Not because of anything of our own selves, but because of his steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, we spend too much time thinking about the wrong things, and that is why we're a bunch of grumpy people all the time. We need to be dwelling upon his steadfast love. We need to be dwelling upon his goodness. He's given us plenty of examples in his word, and he is showing it to us continually with his grace in our own lives, in his own mercy. The more that we have gratitude, the less that we're given over to this sin that is deep within the wickedness of our own hearts. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates is, what he mediates is better since it has enacted on better promises. Now, what he's talking about this better is that it's not that he and his word and his covenant was bad, but it's because it says in verse eight, for he finds fault with them. Because we could not keep that covenant. That because we are not those that have good hearts in of ourselves and we're breaking his covenants that he established with us he has sent us his son to obtain a greater ministry of reconciliation for us. We need to keep going back to the glory and the righteousness and the goodness of his love for us. Because here in that chapter in Hebrews chapter 8, he quotes the very covenant that he has made with us from days of old. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one to his brother saying know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember I will remember their sins no more even though I remember that sin of sitting there on the stairs and not considering doing unto others as I would want them to do to me, he will remember them no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete will grow old and is ready to vanish away. We want to dwell upon the Lord's goodness. We want to dwell upon his promises. We really, truly ought to want to dwell upon his steadfast love. It is our only in great hope. If you find yourself depressed by the news around you, when you hear about the news of those in our nation and those in our world or the news of those in our church, when we hear about people that maybe we even admire and respect have given into sin, and when we hear of the news of those in our families and those who are close to us who are involved in sin, and when we consider our own sin, let us not try to encourage ourselves 
by dwelling on any kind of glimmer of goodness inside of us other than that which has been instilled in us by this new covenant in Christ where he is the mediator for us and that we are being cleansed. See, after we think about these attributes of God, we see here in verse seven, it says, how precious is your steadfast love of God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. The psalmist is so kind and so wise and so good that as we consider the steadfast love and the wonderful attributes of the Lord, we see how those benefit us because of his goodness, because of his glory, because of his name, because of his holiness, he is going to give those things to his people because he is going to keep his word. And then the psalmist teach us by the last strophe to plead out to God to continue this steadfast love to those who know you. He is the one who has taken that diamond pen. It's an interesting and in how it's said there, a diamond pen that we once had engraved by the sin of mankind and our own sin. He has now taken something sharper and greater, the two-edged sword of his word and spirit, and has now written his law into our hearts so that we may know him, that we may also now be considered those who are upright in heart. So that when we do say, follow your own heart, it should be in the context of redeemed hearts, hearts being redeemed by his word. See, it's not all that bad to follow your heart if it is based and rooted upon the writing of his law in our hearts. We do have a thing that we can test to see that whatever is coming from our hearts, does it match his word? Is it consistent? Can we see that fruit bearing forth that as things come out of our minds and hearts, does it seem consistent with what God has said in his word. And if you're contradicting God's word, if you're in an argument where you're saying, no, I see what the Bible says, but I know God's heart, you're automatically going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Because it says he will put his law upon our hearts. So we plead out to God, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Remembering that there the evildoers lie fallen, and they are thrust down, unable to rise. May it be that your hope is not looking toward what mankind has to offer. May it not be that you're encouraging yourself by your own self-deception of who you are. Because otherwise you will be like those dry bones that we hear about in 37, Ezekiel 37, where it is, it says that their hope is like dry bones. We must plead out to the Lord to continue to bring life, to put on sinews and flesh, that that hard heart that had to take a diamond 
to even engrave it now will become hearts of flesh. He said he would do this. And so this is a prayer that we can pray with confidence. That just as Mary and Martha came up to the Lord and says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ. That we won't dwell too much on saying, but, but Jesus, you could have done this if you would have done that. But that we could now hear and understand the words of our Lord when he says that if, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see my glory? That you will see your hearts being transformed. Do you see your hearts being transformed? Do you see those fruits? Some of you may be battling Satan so much that Satan is just constantly there. Nope, nope, you don't have any fruits. Nope, nope. But ask the Lord to keep his word. That you would begin to see the fruits of his word. The fruits of your hearts being changed. Because this is a promise that he said he would keep. You can pray out to the Lord, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Now let me see your glory. Let me see your glory in me. Let me see your glory in and among your people. And Lord, if you would find it to be merciful, that you would show your glory through the repentance of this nation. And that we would be drawn back to the worship of you. That we would not be taking money from the government so that we would remain silent. but that we would proclaim his name even at the cost of our own lives. Because that is what it took for us to be in this place. Because we broke the first covenant, he established this new one. And Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, a greater and more perfect tent now, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into that holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes and a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works, now to serve the living God. Let us pray.